remember as a child hearing my grandparents tell stories about their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents, and I was forced in that generation to sit and listen to this and at least appear interested, but I had no interest whatsoever. And once in a while, they would bring out pictures, and, and it, was, it was so depressing because by the time I was born, my grandparents were already really old. And so then they would bring out pictures of their grandparents, and it was like, that was like in the Revolutionary War. This is just so depressing. I, I wasn't interested in them. But as they told more stories and then got down to my grandfather, who had quite a, quite a lit-up childhood, apparently, all of a sudden I became very interested because I knew him. And I could see this older gentleman that I loved sitting across from me in the living room telling stories about himself when he was eight years old and all the escapades they used to get into. And so all of a sudden I was interested and I think we'll be able to relate to that tonight. We, we come back to Israel, camped on the plains of Moab. They're awaiting orders to cross the Jordan River and to begin the conquest of Canaan. Moses has been telling them essentially the history of the world from God's viewpoint, going all the way back to creation. He's building a case that Israel is serving the one true living God, the creator God. He's given the history of the creation. He's given the history of the Garden of Eden, the fall into sin, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the origin of nations. We've looked at all of that so far. And now in chapter 11, he gives a genealogy. And these were all men that nobody had ever known. But just like my ears perked up when my grandfather suddenly got to himself, somebody that I knew, I would imagine that their ears perked up when Moses got to the end of this genealogy because the climactic point, the, the, the highlight moment in this genealogy is suddenly of great interest because it ends with the man who is called the father of Israel, the great hero of the Jewish faith, Abraham, known first as Abram. And in fact, from this point on until the middle of chapter 25 or so, Abraham is going to be really the heart, the heartbeat of the story of Genesis. He is arguably the main character of the book. So for tonight, we're going to introduce the man, Abram, he is the setting of the coming kingdom of God on earth. And we're just going to kind of uncharacteristically camp on just a few verses. And as I said, next time we're going to cover 15 chapters, the extensive saga of the father of Israel next time. But these verses, chapter 11, beginning in verse 10, really stand as the transition from primeval history to patriarchal history, the the big sweeping events of creation and the Garden of Eden and the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel. And all of a sudden now we get to a, a very clear focus on just one man. Now, by the way, I'm going to use the names Abram and Abraham interchangeably. That is a rule I've made in my own life because it's too hard to keep track of, are you talking about him before Genesis 17 when his name was changed or after Genesis 17 when his name was changed? Uh, we could use the New Testament rule, which 100% of the time calls him Abraham. But sometimes in the genealogy here, he's still called Abram. But I'm going to not worry about mixing them up. We'll just let it be okay. Same guy. Now, the challenge in any genealogy is that the moment I said the word genealogy, you said, wow, I could have stayed home tonight. I could have made my nap go longer. The challenge is convincing the listener that this is just as important as any other portion of Scripture, that this isn't just a space holder meant for us to yawn our way through to get to the good stuff. The genealogies of Scripture have importance. 
Some of them demonstrate God's commitment to save the nations. We'll see another one of those in a couple of weeks. Some of them, such as this one, show God's plan to fulfill his promises to redeem mankind through a chosen nation. And some, such as the genealogies of Christ in the New Testament, prove the qualifications of Christ as the promised Messiah. Every genealogy in Scripture is is trying to tell us something. It's trying to give us something far beyond just a mundane list of who begat whom. So, what is our text, which is the genealogy of Shem, what is it trying to speak to our hearts? Well, I'll just tell you up front. The message of the genealogy of Shem is that God's plan for the salvation of mankind from sin is unstoppable. It is unstoppable. That's the lesson tonight. God's plan for the salvation of mankind from sin is unstoppable. Now, the title of my message tonight is The Setting for the Kingdom. All the messages in Genesis are kingdom-centered because that's what Genesis is about. But the setting is Abraham. That's really the setting, but it's not just a, an historical setting. Abraham is also the theological setting for the kingdom. And so this genealogy gives us so many rich nuggets of truth about the, the theology of the kingdom of God. And since this is the theological setting for the kingdom and we have the benefit of the progressive revelation of the New Testament to help us out, we could put together what I'll just call a guide to the Christian faith from a genealogy. So that's how we'll organize our thoughts tonight. Here's how we'll divide our guide to the Christian faith in five sections. And I'll give these to you as we go, but we'll we'll talk about the persistence of faith. We'll talk about the point of faith. We'll talk about the proof of faith. We'll look at the provider of faith. And then we'll look at the prince of faith. Persistence, the point, the proof, the provider, and the prince of faith. Our guide to the Christian faith. Now, to each of those little pieces, I'm going to add another clause to give it more explanation as we go. But let's read the text first, and then we'll dive in. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. When Shem was 100 years old, he fathered Arpachshad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he fathered Arpachshad 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arpachshad had lived 35 years, he fathered Shelah. I always felt sorrier for Shelah because that's a bummer of a name for a guy in our culture. And Arpachshad lived after he fathered Shelah 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber. And Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Eber had lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he fathered Ru. And Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Ru had lived 32 years, he fathered Sarag. And Ru lived after he fathered Sarag 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Sarag had lived 30 years, he fathered Nahor. And Sarah lived after he fathered Nahor 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he fathered Terah. And Nahor lived after he fathered Terah 119 years and had other sons and daughters. When Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, or Haran. 
The most important men in this genealogy are the first and the last ones. Shem is first, and we'll say Abram is last, even though his two brothers are listed after him. Theologically, he is most important. So Shem and Abram, the, the two bookends, we'll pay more attention to that here in a moment. Now, I could spend a lot of detail, a lot of time on the generations here in between, and we could talk about uh, the, the meanings of their names and try to extrapolate some principles from that. I don't think that would bear the spiritual fruit, though, for us that the bigger picture will give us. But I do just want to give you a couple of quick comments through some of those names. In verse 16, we see for uh, multiple times now, Eber is mentioned. He is repeated from the genealogy table of nations in chapter 10 and you'll recall that Eber was very possibly a king of the city of Ebla and he became the namesake of the Hebrews he's called what's called the patronym he became the the one that the Hebrews were named after verse 18 mentions Peleg chapter 10 also mentions Peleg and his brother Joktan chapter 10 verse 25 says to Eber was born two sons the name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. What does it mean that in his days the earth was divided? Well, it was in Peleg's generation, apparently, that the Tower of Babel happened, that the Lord confused the languages of the earth, and the peoples were scattered. They were divided. But now, Joktan gets put off to the side, and he would, as you recall, become the, the father of all of the Mediterranean peoples, the, the Greek peoples, Macedonian peoples. But the genealogy stays focused on Peleg. You'll also notice the rapidly declining lifespans. The pre-flood conditions, which apparently assisted long life, even after the fall into sin, that's gone now. Those conditions are gone, and lifespans are gradually whittling down very quickly. But very quickly, we get down to the major family in question, the family of Terah, the father of Abram, the father of the nation of Israel through Isaac and Isaac's son, Jacob. So let's put together our guide to the Christian faith. The first part, the persistence of faith. And I'll finish that phrase now with another one. The persistence of faith is God's doing. The persistence of faith is God's doing. Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, 28, God gave what we've called over and over again the central directive that mankind was created in the image of God to rule as his vice regents on earth, to have dominion over the earth, to rule alongside in the name of the Lord as the kings and queens of the earth. They were to be fruitful, they were to be multiply, they were to multiply and they were to scatter and fill the earth. That's what they were to do. Genesis 3 records that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve's disobedience to the Lord and consequently death entered into creation. Genesis 4, we have the first catastrophic results of sin. The murderous heart of mankind is now revealed as demonstrated in Abel's murder at the hands of his brother Cain. Genesis 5 then records the genealogy of Adam. God gave Adam and Eve a replacement son named Seth. And Seth would be the chosen line of God through whom the Savior, promised all the way back in Genesis 3.15, would come. And so the genealogy of Adam in Genesis 5 is traced through Seth, the oldest child, the chosen child rather, all the way to Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But now we've seen two disastrous world events in between these genealogies. First of all, because of the worldwide scale of mankind's sin and rebellion, God destroyed the whole earth, inundating 
uh, in undoing the creation with his flood, he, he essentially undid some of what he had created. And he saved just eight people, Noah and his immediate family, essentially starting over completely. But in the generations following Noah, things didn't improve because Noah certainly was part of the cleansing of the earth from sinners, but he was not part of the cleansing of the earth from sin because on the ark, along with all the animals, came the sin nature of humanity. And so in the generations after Noah, people would once again unite in rebellion against God. They would build a city and a tower to preserve their name, not God's name, but their name. They rejected the central directive to be fruitful, to fill the earth, and instead they endeavored to stay all together to make a name for themselves. And so God confused their languages such that they would spread out into the nations that God originally intended for them to form. Now, this is important to note. You have the genealogy of Adam through Seth, the chosen son through whom the redemptive plan of God is going to be worked out. And so you, you see, well, there's hope. Okay, there's this chosen son, Seth, and, and the Savior must be coming soon. But then you have these two worldwide wholesale rebellions against God, two of them. And now we get to the genealogy of Shem, the son of Noah, in chapter 11. And this genealogy is extremely similar to the Genesis 5 genealogy. The wording and the pattern of the genealogies are remarkably similar. Genesis 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Genesis 11, these are the generations of Shem. Both give the ages of each father when they had the son who's featured in the genealogy. Both tell how much longer each father lived after the birth of the chosen son in each generation. And so when you read Genesis 5 and read Genesis 11, you, you can see that they're almost, you could almost lay one on top of the other, that they're so similar. And it really gives you as the reader a sense of consistency, a sense of permanency that the redemptive plan of God is still pushing forward. It's still going. You have the Genesis 5 genealogy, which ends with the birth of Noah's chosen son, Shem. Then you have the small matter of a worldwide flood, a giant tower, and everybody spreading out over the whole world. And then Genesis 11 picks right up. These are the generations of Shem. It has the feel of, now where were we? After the flood and after the Tower of Babel. In fact, Genesis 11, this genealogy pushes and advances the kingdom of God even further. Shem was given a blessing, but it was a promise. This blessing of God was given prophetically by his father Noah in Genesis 9 that Shem would be the chosen son to carry forward God's redemptive plan into history. But the genealogy here ends with Abram. He doesn't just receive a promise. He doesn't just receive a blessing. He actually gets the benefits of this blessing. He gets the benefit of what was promised to Shem. He will get to see the fruit of the blessing given to Shem in many respects. And how is this blessing going to work itself out? It's going to work itself out in the covenant that God will make with Abraham beginning in chapter 12. It's reiterated in chapter 15, 17, 18, and 22. And you put it all together and these are promises to Abraham hearkening all the way back to God's promises to Shem and they really provide the framework for the rest of God's redemptive plan in all of the Bible. The Abrahamic covenant is referenced in detail in 27 Old Testament books and 11 New Testament books. This is a major, major part of our Bible. And if you were in BTI just a week ago, we covered this a little bit. But I want to review this because the Abrahamic covenant 
is the vehicle upon which the rest of the Bible flows. The Abrahamic covenant would have three major aspects to it. The first we would call seed and nation. The seed and nation aspect. These are descendants. And there are some qualities that we would see if we took time to study this. The descendants will be innumerable, like the sand of the sea and the stars. First, you'll have physical descendants. And then you have Romans 4 says that Abraham will have spiritual descendants. Guess who the spiritual descendants of Abraham are? Right here. It's you. And then you have Abraham called the father of all of God's people in Galatians 3. And then finally, you have the singular seed of Abraham, Galatians 3, verse 16. So the seed and nation will be ruled by a single king who is that promised child. And so this goes all the way back to God's promises to Adam and Eve for a coming savior. The second aspect you have is land. I've said this before, but land is so very important in scripture because it, it indicates God is a promise-keeping God. Abraham has promised a nation, promised a physical territory. And in this nation, it, it's not just a temporary nation. It's not as so many uh, eschatological writers have said that it, God was done with Israel in 70 AD when, when Jerusalem was destroyed. This is an everlasting promise. I want to be there when all of those that have preached that God has done with Israel are marching through New Jerusalem someday in Israel. I just want to, I just want to do one little godly, yeah, like that. Just a little one, nothing big. Then you have the third aspect, and that is blessing. The ultimate purpose of the Abrahamic covenant would be to bless all peoples. Genesis 12, 2 and 3 says this. God intended Abraham and the nation of Israel to be the channel of blessing to all of the world. And we see how this works out because the New Testament era opens linking the Abrahamic covenant to Jesus Christ. What, how does the New Testament open? Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Does that sound familiar? The son of David, the son of Abraham. Immediately in verse 1 of the entire New Testament, we're connected to the Abrahamic covenant. And so through Abraham, God is continuing his redemptive plan, which includes seed and nation, land, and blessing. And all three of these aspects are, are expressed, by the way, in other covenants. The land aspect is expressed in God's covenant with Israel, often called the Mosaic covenant, because the law of Moses is about how to live in the land with holiness. The seed and nation aspect is expressed in God's covenant with King David, the Davidic covenant, that there will always be a real nation of Israel with a real Davidic king, the seed descended from David from all, for all time. And that will be, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the blessing aspect is expressed in the new covenant, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed in salvation through Christ. God promises Abraham through whom comes Israel, through whom comes Jesus the Savior, through whom comes salvation from sin. But we don't just start with Abraham. The, the combination of the genealogies of Genesis 5 and 11 connect Abraham all the way back to Adam. And this is super important because of the divine purpose of the central directive given to Adam that he was to rule, he was to have dominion on the earth and his seed through the woman was to restore sinlessness on earth. He was to restore peace. How? Because he would bring conflict with evil. He would come and have conflict with Satan and with sin, with death. And so you can trace God's redemptive plan from Adam to Seth to Shem to Abraham to Israel, to Jesus Christ, to you. 
God's redemptive plan will not fail. It will stay on track. Now, I thought about this. Given God's commitment to his own plan of salvation, when you were graciously saved by the grace of God and promised in eternity with him, do you really think there's anything you could do to derail those promises? If the flood can't do it, if the Tower of Babel can't do it, can you out God's forgiveness? Can you out-unrighteous God's righteousness in Christ? Or as one preacher said, can you out-doubt God's certainty of keeping you safely in his hand? The Apostle John wrote his amazing and comforting letter of 1 John, and he gives the purpose of the letter at the very end. He says in 1 John 5, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I love these first 11 chapters of Genesis because they, it, it says nothing's going to derail God. Oh, so you had a bad week or a bad month or a bad year and you rebelled for a little while. Do you think that's going to make you lose your salvation? Hey, he's dealt with the flood. In fact, he caused the flood. Nothing will derail his plan. So in our guide to the Christian faith, the persistence of faith is God's doing. It's God's doing. The second part of our guide to the Christian faith we'll call the point of faith. The point of faith, and I'll finish this phrase, the point of faith is rescue from death. The point of faith is rescue from death. And we have to trace this as well. God told Adam in Genesis 2, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. When Adam sinned, he died spiritually and he became the representative head of mankind. He doomed all of us to be born with a sin nature. And we've proven that we have a sin nature. Why? Because we sin. And Romans 5.12 says this, that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, In Adam, all die. And then physical death would, in fact, follow. Genesis 5, verse 5, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died, just as God promised. But in the genealogy of Genesis 11, we get two major indicators that God's redemptive plan for mankind is all about rescuing us from death from the eternal consequences of physical death and spiritual death. The first major indicator is just simply the structure of Genesis itself. The structure of Genesis itself, a major shift now happens beginning in verse 10 of chapter 11. Genesis 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 through verse 9 traces the entrance of sin, the development of sin, and the increase of sin. And because of the entrance, the development, and the increase of sin, now we have the entrance of death, the development of death, and the increase of death. But from now on in Genesis, the, the story has an upward trajectory because the story now moves toward God's plan to bless, to redeem his creation, to be the kingdom that he originally set forth. In fact, the very end of Genesis gives a, a poignant reminder that while death continues because of sin, there is a future hope. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, the very, very end of the book and the very end of the chapter, in fact. The last chapters of Genesis focus on how God is about to form the nation of Israel and the main character is Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, 
You recall that Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was elevated by God all the way to prime minister of Egypt to fulfill God's purposes to rescue Joseph's family from famine and bring them to Egypt so that God might grow the family of Jacob into the mighty nation of Israel. But listen to how Genesis ends. Genesis 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then he makes this unusual request. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him. Here's the last phrase in Genesis, the beginning of life. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis ends with the death and a coffin, but with a directive to take Joseph's remains to the promised land. Now, why is this? Well, in Ezekiel's vision by God of the land of Israel as a valley of dry bones, God said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up, our hope is lost, we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. Why did Joseph want his bones taken to Israel so that he would be resurrected in his own homeland? And so Genesis ends with this hope. It ends with death, certainly, but it ends with the hope of resurrection and life. There's a second major indicator that God's redemptive plan is all about rescuing us from death. And it's found again in the comparison of the genealogies of Genesis 5 and Genesis 11. Let me show you. Go to Genesis 5 with me. Genesis 5. And we'll look at verse 5. And I'll just skip to a few other verses. Genesis 5, verse 5, Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Verse 8, Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Verse 11, Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. Verse 14, And he died. Verse 17, And he died. Verse 20, And he died. Verse 24, Enoch is an exception. God took him. Verse 27, And he died. Verse 31, and he died over and over and over again. But the genealogy of chapter 11 is different. Look at chapter 11. Let's say verse 14. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he fathered Eber, and Shelah lived after he fathered Eber 403 years. Verse 17, and Eber lived after he fathered Peleg 430 years. Verse 19, and Peleg lived after he fathered Ru 209 years. And that becomes the pattern. Now, obviously, those men did die. But the similarities between the Genesis 5 
genealogy and the Genesis 11 genealogy are so profound and so clear that this difference stands out as extremely purposeful. There is a, a, a purpose to this. The first genealogy, Andy died eight times in Genesis 5, zero times in Genesis 11. There's no mention of death. This is highlighting a move away from death and toward life. And this genealogy gives hope that God will deal with the curse of sin and death through the promised seed of woman who will crush the head of Satan. And so, yes, death came through one man, Adam. And now Genesis is moving us toward life, coming through the one man, Jesus Christ, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So in our guide to the Christian faith, the persistence of faith is God's doing. The point of faith is rescue from death. We could do a third section, a third part, the proof of faith. The proof of faith, and I'll finish this sentence, the proof of faith is total obedience. It's total obedience. The genealogy ends on the climactic note of Terah, and more importantly, Abram, Verse 26 of chapter 11, when Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, or Haran. Now, just a little side note here. Abram is not the oldest. Like Noah's sons, the sons of Terah are listed by theological importance, not chronological importance. Terah couldn't have been 70 when Abram was born, since the following verses indicate that Terah died at the age of 205. Chapter 12, verse 4 shows that then Abram went to Canaan at the age of 75. So Terah was as old as 130 when Abram was born. So we just have to do a little math there. Probably Nahor is actually the oldest because he's named after his grandfather. Now we get some vital family and event information from, that we'll just briefly touch on. Verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, chapter 12 opens with the first mention of the Abrahamic covenant. But according to Acts chapter 7, God gave this message to Abram before they ever left Ur of the Chaldeans. And so we have an interesting little puzzle here. Verse 31 of chapter 11 indicates that Terah is the head of the family. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, Abram's nephew, and Sarai, Abram's wife, and they went forth together from, the Ur, from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. But they came to a city called Haran. I know that's a little confusing, and they settled there. We shouldn't confuse the city of Haran with the son of Terah. The city of Haran is probably the ancestral home of Terah's clan, and so the son Haran was probably named after the city to keep that connection alive. But the question is, who is the head of the family here? Terah led the family out of Ur of the Chaldeans, but God spoke to Abram, the son. 
Now, in the past, I have taken the position that God may have called Terah first, and that's a reasonable position since verse 27 highlights him, not Abram. But Terah stopped in Haran, and there he died. Some have speculated that perhaps he wasn't ready to go all the way to Canaan. It may just be that he was just too old to keep going. But there is a possibility that what we do know is that Terah was the head of the family as the oldest living male. He died, and the family, out of, out of response to God's call to Abram, had left. So what happened? How, how did this all go down? Because in, in the ancient Near East, whoever is in charge of the family is a big deal. So we could reconstruct the series of events like this. Abram received the word of God in Ur, and that's recorded in chapter 12. There's no rule that says everything always has to be chronological. That is put at the end of the event so that we see the climax of what the whole point of this is. Then, as the living head of the family, Terah led the family out of Ur to head toward Canaan. He's in charge. Then they went through Haran, the the family ancestral home. Terah died in the city of Haran. And then finally, Abram continued on to Canaan, chapter 12, verse 4. Now, we have to lay that groundwork because I want to make the case that Abram and his father Terah are demonstrating true faith proven by their total obedience to the Lord. Both of them are true believers in Yahweh. Let's consider Abram, first of all. Now, if you're like I am, you picture Abram or Abraham living in tents all his life. And that is true from the moment he left Ur of the Chaldeans. But Ur was a major city and Abram and his family would have had a home. They would have had land. They would have had possessions there. Abram wasn't born in a tent. He had a house. The display of Abram's faith was life-changing. He left everything to obey the Lord. Genesis 15 verse 6 records that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. But Genesis 15 doesn't record the moment that Abram turned to obey the Lord. It's just a record of the moment of salvation that happened in Ur of the Chaldeans many years before. How do we know this? Hebrews 11.8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Where did Abram's faith originate? He was still in Ur of the Chaldeans. He didn't get saved in Genesis 15. He was saved before that. He left everything behind, including his possessions, including, by the way, his worship of pagan gods. And what about Terah? He was the patriarchal head of the family. Abram was his son, and in the, ancient, in the ancient Near East, if dad says we're not going anywhere, then the family's not going anywhere. And with the, the ages that people live to, you could be 70 years old and still submitting to your parents, kind of like the Prince of Wales still is having to do right now. And so if the, if the call of God came to Abram, why would Terah, the head of the family, follow Abram? The text doesn't say that Terah followed Abram. Verse 31 says that Terah led Abram. And why is this? Because Terah wasn't following Abram. Terah was following God. God had spoken to Abram and told him to go to Canaan, and Terah left also because he was a worshiper of Yahweh. And I'm going to prove that to you in a minute. But what God or gods had Abram and Terah worshipped before? We get a couple of clues. Ur of the Chaldeans was considered a major center for the worship of the local moon god, Nanu or Nano, and Haran was associated with moon god worship as well. 
And there's a close language connection here. Tera is related to the word Yarea in Hebrew for moon. So it seems that there's a very strong association with moon god worship in this family. Now, if you're one of the Israelites and you're listening to Moses, you're on, the, you're on the, the plains of Moab, you're on the banks of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over into conquest, and you are hearing that these guys were moon god worshipers, but they were faithful to the Lord, this would be important information for an Israelite because Israel's about to be surrounded by pagan nations worshiping countless false gods, but here they're given the testimony that their father in the faith, Abram, and his father, Terah, they left everything to follow the one true living God. The God of Abraham communicated clearly, unlike the false gods of the pagan nations. He communicated clearly with personal communication. He gave commands and promises and guidance through every decade. You could track the communication of God in Abram's life. The promises that God will make to Abram of a seed, nation, land, and blessing in chapters 12, 15, 17, 18, 22, they required faith on Abram's part. It's not that Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans and then came to faith. He came to faith and then he left. And that's why Abram is the paragon of this unequivocal faith in Yahweh, which is willing to leave everything for the Lord. Now, how do we know that Abram and Terah were saved by faith? After the conquest of Canaan, Joshua 24 records, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abram and of Nahor, and they served other gods. So all of them in the family of Terah were pagan moon god worshipers. But then Genesis 31 records the the making of peace between Laban, who would be Abraham's great nephew and Jacob, Abraham's grandson. And listen carefully. Don't worry about the making of peace part. Just listen to a phrase at the end. Genesis 31, beginning of verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar. It's just a little pillar they set up, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, that's Abraham's brother, the God of their father, judge between us. Terah is said to serve the God of creation. Yahweh then is said to be the God of Abraham's father, Terah. And what was the proof of their faith? They left everything to obey the Lord. Terah didn't make it to Abram, to, to Canaan rather, but Abram did. Terah didn't live to see those promises. Abram did. Well, our guide to the Christian faith, the persistence of faith is God's doing. The point of faith is rescue from death. The proof of faith is total obedience. Here's another section, the provider of faith. The provider of faith, and I'll finish this sentence, the provider of faith is God alone. The provider of faith is God alone. Now, so far, if you're evaluating Genesis, does Genesis seem to tell the story of God calling out to the world and saying, gee, I hope some of you decide to follow me. Do you get that sense? I don't get that sense at all. Him saying, I'm really crossing my fingers that someone will be wise enough to have faith in me. When Cain murdered Abel, 
God gave Adam and Eve a replacement son, all as part of his overall plan. Eve named him Seth, which means appointed or chosen or ordained. And Eve even said, God has appointed, God has sethed me, so to speak, for me another offspring. And the genealogy of Genesis 5 tracks the line of the appointed one, of Seth. And in his line is the unique man Enoch who walked with God and God took him without death to heaven. Do you think that was Enoch's choice? I I think Enoch was just walking along one day and go, wow, okay, I'm gone, that's it. That, That wasn't Enoch's choice. Seth's line continued to Noah, of whom Genesis 6 verse 8 says, Noah found favor, the Hebrew word for grace, in the eyes of the Lord. Noah had three sons and God appointed Shem. He appointed, he selected, he chose him as the chosen line. And Shem takes us all the way to Abram, a moon god worshiper living in a moon god capital called Ur. And chapter 12 begins, the Lord, that is Yahweh, which means in essence the living one, said to Abram, go from your country to the land that I will show you. Chapter 12, verse 2 And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 15, 6 records that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. That is looking back to Ur. Abram was just going about his moon God worshiping business and Yahweh spoke to him and called him to faith. Or how about this gracious act of God? Haran, Abram's brother, died while the family was still in Haran. He's probably the youngest brother. And by the way, this is the first time since Adam and Abel that a son has died before his father. According to the strong connections of the ancient Near East, families, Lot, Haran's son, and Abram's nephew was now in Abram's charge. He was under the blessing of Abram's house, and Lot also came to saving faith in Yahweh almost certainly through the divinely orchestrated event of being essentially adopted by Abraham under that umbrella of blessing how do we know that Lot came to saving faith Second Peter 2 7 and 8 says that Lot was a righteous man and he was tormented in his soul at the sinless or sinful and lawless unrighteous deeds of unbelievers he's called a righteous man because Why? Because God chose him. His father died, so he's adopted by Abram, and he's in the family of the elect. What's the point here? Seth, chosen. Noah, chosen. Shem, chosen. Abram, chosen. Lot, chosen. You want to hazard a guess as to what you are? Chosen. How did this come about? God the Father chose some for salvation from sin and he gave them to God the Son. Jesus prayed to the Father in John 17, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. The provider of faith is God alone. One more section in our guide to the Christian faith. The prince of faith The prince of faith, and you can probably finish this sentence, the prince of faith is the long-awaited Messiah. The prince of faith is the long-awaited Messiah. And I want to focus in on the long-awaited part. The genealogy of Genesis 11 is filled with the Hebrew word yolad. It's translated in the the King James Version as begat, right? So-and-so begat, so-and-so. It's translated in the English 
Standard Version as fathered. 16 times he fathered, he fathered, he fathered, or he begat, he begat, he begat. But then you get to the end of the genealogy. Abram fathered no one. In verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is the first time that this has happened. And this is a problem because the seed of woman, the singular savior who is to come to save the world from sin, to crush the head of Satan, is to come through Abram. And now what we see introduced into the story of redemption is the theme of a long-awaited son. In fact, a delayed son often signaled that a child was marked out for a special purpose unto God. From the time Abram left Haran to go on to Canaan, having the promise that God, uh, from God that from his body would come the nation and the seed, Abram waited 25 more years for the birth of his son Isaac. I mean, it's almost too late. He's 100 years old when Isaac is born the chosen continuation of the promise. Then Isaac grows up. He marries Rebekah, and they couldn't have children. Genesis twenty-five twenty-one. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And God opened Rebekah's womb 20 years after they were married. She gave birth to the twins, Esau and Jacob, the younger one chosen by God to be the continuation of the promise. And then in Genesis 30, Jacob's wife, Rachel, can't have children. And so the theme of this long-awaited delay of a son, it continues. Genesis chapter 30, verse 22, God opened Rachel's womb not to give birth to the chosen seed, but to a very special boy named Joseph, who would be the means by which God would bring Jacob's family to, to Egypt so that they could grow into a nation. The theme of a long-awaited son is very familiar to us in Scripture. It's, it's common for us. The wife of Manoah was unable to have children. God gave her a son, Samson. Why is he special? He would deliver Israel from her enemies. Hannah was in, unable to conceive and prayed for a son. She received Samuel, who would anoint David, the king of Israel, the first Davidic king, who is David himself. In other words, every instance of a delayed son in the Old Testament is vital to the story of redemption. And so you read through the Old Testament, you just see this as a pattern and you get used to it. So right from the beginning, God establishes this tension of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the seed of promise. All, of course, pointing to the original promised seed, the seed of woman who would crush the head of Satan and defeat sin and death. And so when we read in Isaiah 9, verse 6, we're not surprised. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, man, talk about building suspense. All of Old Testament history longs for the coming seed of woman, the center and the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom Isaiah calls the Prince of our faith, the Prince of Peace. As a matter of fact, whether we as believers in Christ, who has already come once, what are we doing right now? Hebrews 9, 28, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly, what? Waiting for him. That, that theme of the long-awaited son, it just continues through scripture. We're living it right now. 
By the way, this is a great answer for the question when somebody says, well, Christianity isn't even the oldest religion. And so it can't be true. It's not even the oldest religion. Really? The long-awaited son theme is at the beginning and at the end. At the beginning of time, in the Garden of Eden, God promised that the seed of woman would come and crush the head of Satan and conquer sin and death. And the second to last verse of the Bible records the words of that seed of woman, surely I am coming soon. There's still anticipation. And the prayer of John the Apostle in response is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Christianity isn't the oldest religion. Are you kidding me? Chapter 1 and the last chapter. Everything is about waiting for the Son, the long-awaited Son of God. So what do you need to know about the Christian faith? The persistence of faith is God's doing. The point of faith is rescue from death. The proof of faith is total obedience. The provider of faith is God alone. And the prince of faith is the long-delayed Messiah. I think it would have been very exciting to the people of Israel to hear from the lips of Moses the name of the father of their nation, Abram, in the genealogy of Genesis 11. But there's another genealogy that should excite you. It's maybe one you don't know about. It's a genealogy in Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2 verses 9 and 10 says this, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, here's the genealogy, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The genealogy which springs forth from Christ is that in salvation he will bring sons and daughters to himself. That's a genealogy that has your name in it. That's an exciting genealogy. And so in a very real sense, you are connected through Christ all the way back to the genealogy of chapter 11, all the way back to the genealogy of chapter 5, all the way back to the central directive of chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, so that you can go all the way to the end in Genesis 22, where we see that all those who have had faith in Christ are reigning alongside him, fulfilling the central directive. Genesis is about the kingdom. Abram is the setup of the kingdom. You are the result of the kingdom. What a great, great book. I hope that this truth has been as exciting to you as it has been to me. Don't ever read a genealogy the same way again, okay? Our Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. How exciting it is to see the difference between and he died, and he died, and he died, and then and he lived, and he lived, and he lived. And that will be our story. We're counting on the persistence that you have the commitment you have to your own plan because one day our story will be and he died and she died. Perhaps even in this pulpit some, somebody will stand up and read a eulogy perhaps even for some of us. And so we're counting on you, Lord. We're counting on your faithfulness that our story doesn't end with and he died but it continues with and he lived and he lived and he lived. And so we will look to Christ, our Savior, for a resurrection life. We thank you for the faithfulness that you have to your own salvation plan and to us. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.